If you have a Bible, I want you to open it with me to the 32nd Psalm. We're studying through this psalm together this summer, and uh, we come now to verse 5 and go on and also be finding 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, psalm 32 serves sort of as David's journal, and uh, 2 Samuel 12 gives us the historical background of what's going on in David's life at the time that he, that he writes this. And every time I read the 32nd Psalm, I think of an incident that occurred in my life when I was a child, and I know I've shared it with you, but I just want to give it as an illustration again so it'll help us to understand a little bit of what's going to go on in David's life. When I was a little boy uh, growing up, I spent a lot of time by myself for the reason that I was the youngest of three boys. And when you're the youngest of three boys, the other older two, there's a little season of life that they kind of don't want the little brother hanging around. And so I found myself... In my backyard, a lot of time with the good old G.I. Joe men, and one day I was going to build the uh, mother of all G.I. Joe forts. Uh, So I got my shovel out and and started to dig away to get all the dirt up. And in the process of digging, um, my my dad had been doing some yard work and he'd already dug a hole. And uh, so I started digging in that hole, and and then my shovel hit something really solid. And then I'm, you know, an eight year old boy, so my imagination begins to get the best of me, and I don't know what it is. You know, we're not too far from the East Coast. I was living in Fayetteville, so I thought maybe, it's, you know, maybe it's buried treasure. I mean, I don't know. Or maybe it's, maybe it's some bodies buried in my backyard. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. And so I've got kind of a sharp edge to my shovel, and so I start to kind of work around it. And then finally, I take my shovel, and I really start just, I don't really know. Eight-year-old boys, they do things that doesn't make any sense. And so I just start slamming the shovel down on top of this hard uh, canister, and I, and I realize it's not buried treasure at all. I've been digging around the, the septic tank. And I can assure you, there, treasure is not the appropriate term to apply to when I busted that thing wide open, all that began to rise. And so I very quickly did this. I went over that pile of dirt that I'd scooped up and I started to cover it back up real fast. Do you know the verb to seep, S-E-E-P? Things began to seep up. So I started to try to cover it up and try to smooth it all over. And as you might imagine, I was, I was a mess by the time that was done. And what I did not know is the whole time I'm covering up and smoothing it up, my dad's at the kitchen window, and he's seen the whole thing happen. So eight-year-old boy, I walk in, you know, I, I, I know I've been told by my dad many times uh, not to dig around in the backyard particularly a couple of months prior to that, I dug up a fire ant hole and that about did me in. And so he'd already always told me, you know, I'd had these clear commands of my father, don't go messing around with the shovel in the backyard. I don't think he anticipated this, but now I busted the sewer line wide open. I go in the house and, uh, you know, the evidence is pretty clear. And he asked me what I've been doing. And I said, oh, I've not been doing anything. I've been playing G.I. Joe and, and uh, have to kind of discard the clothes. I mean, my favorite t-shirt, it's gone and, and try to... I, I, and then now what began to happen the rest of the night, every time my dad entered the room, I just feel uncomfortable. Like, is he going to find out? I'm thinking, is he going to find out? He's, he already knows. And he began to just kind of pepper me with questions. You, who left the shovel out? That must have been Frank. It's been Joe. He probably did that. He, you know, Dad, he's always leaving that stuff out. Uh, anybody digging in the yard today? I don't know. Maybe it was the dog. We don't have a dog. Well, maybe it was somebody else's dog. You know, I, I, and then the, go to school the whole next day, and I'm just the whole day just dreading having to go home. I mean, I, I understand enough. I'm eight years old. I understand enough that the problem's not going to 
not come literally to the surface. So I'm trying to spin all of these uh, explanations, and even to an eight-year-old boy, none of these explanations sound uh, good. David, when he's writing Psalm 32, he's done something horrific. And he knows he's done something horrific, but he's trying to cover it up. He's not busted a sewage line wide open. He's busted some people's lives, including his own wide open. And, and what happened, you'll remember, the Bible says in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, when David's the king, when the kings are going to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem and sent Joab in his place. And the battle went fine. I mean, that's not the problem. They, the Bible says they ravaged the Ammonites who were their rival at the time, and they besieged Rabbah. They put a siege around the city. I mean, they're going to take them down. The Bible says, but David remained at Jerusalem, and it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So we kind of get an idea of what David's been doing. It's late in the afternoon, he's turned into a couch potato, that he decided to walk on the rooftop of the king's house, and while he was there, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And then David does a tragic thing. He lingers in the moment of temptation. The Bible says, flee sexual immorality. David lingers, and then it says he sent and inquired about her. And this one servant comes up and has the guts to say, is this not Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then the Bible says that David sent for her and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and then she went home. So he's busted something wide open. It's just a matter of time before everything begins to come to the surface. And it begins to come to the surface because Bathsheba, the Bible says, sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And here's the next phrase from 2 Samuel 11. David sent to Joab. He's the man leading the army. And the woman's husband is in the battle besieging the city. And David has him come home. And here's, David tries to cover this whole thing up. He says, this is going to be a real simple plan. I'm going to bring the woman's husband home. Everybody's going to see that she's, he comes home. So in uh, several months when the baby's born, they'll put two and two together again. And we've talked about this, so we won't rehash the whole thing. The plan doesn't work because Uriah ends up being a man of integrity and a man of honor. He's been with these men in the battle. He's been on the front lines. And he says, he says pretty much to David, I can't go to my wife and enjoy our marriage and, and, and the things that go on in a marriage because my, my brothers in arms, my comrades, man, they're still in the field. And so then the Bible says that David brings Uriah in and gets him drunk and then sends him home. Still throwing the dirt on top of the mess. Still trying to smooth it over, but Uriah, even drunk, won't go home. And man, David, here's the problem. The more you try to cover it up, the more desperate it becomes and the more people who are hurt. So David sends word to Joab through Uriah. I mean, this is as low as it gets. He sends a message from the king to the general, to, to, to Joab. Here's the words. I want you to, to, to do this tactical blunder. I want you to send the troops to the wall. They're besieging the city. So they're just waiting them out. It's just a matter of time until the people in the city wall surrender. David says, I want you to send the troops to the wall. Guess what's on top of the wall? Archers are on top of the wall. And when you're sieging them, you, you stay out of range. But he said, I want you to send them. And when they get there, I want you, all, all the other soldiers to withdraw and you leave Uriah standing there. And that's exactly what happens. Joab does what David says. And so Uriah charges the wall with the other men. And then those men withdraw. And can you imagine that moment for Uriah? He's got to be wondering, what in the world is going on? This man of honor and integrity, the arrows start to go through his body. And the blood starts to flow, and he's dead. And then, get this, if you're over here in 2 Samuel 11, David has the gall to go then and take Bathsheba to be his wife. And when that happens, he pats the mound of dirt and says, all right, all covered up. 
no one's ever going to know. And then there's one last little bitty statement in 2 Samuel 11, and here's what it says. But the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter how much dirt you pack on top of that hole, God sees it all. So, what's going to happen from here? That's what we'll study this morning. So we'll pray together, and then we'll talk about a message coming clean and what's going to happen next for David. Because God loves David too much to leave him where he is. So, Father, help us now to understand this. There is a way for sin to be covered up. There is a way for sin to be forgiven. There is a way for David and my and everyone in the room's transgressions to be covered, but it's not in the manner that we seek most often to, to do it. So, Father, I pray that you'd illuminate our minds and hearts through the Scripture so that we can understand how, how sin really can be covered eternally, how God can say, as far as east is from west, so far have I removed transgressions from you. Help us to know how that happens, what's required of us, and what it is that God Almighty has done in order for that to be true, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question is, how's David been doing this whole time? Uh, uh, the cover-up. How's he been doing in his soul? Now, on the outside, he's got to put forward the, the, the good face, right? The smile, and he can come and do all the sorts of things that people are accustomed to him doing. But on the inside, how's he been doing? He answers that in the journal of Psalm 32 that the Holy Spirit inspires him to write. He says, night and day your hand was heavy upon me. And we talked about that last week. And then here's a phrase that all of us, especially this week, can relate to. My soul was as the dry heat of summer. And again, that means that when David goes to bed at night, man, he just tosses and turns. And he looks at it and the clock says 3 in the morning, 3.30. He can't rest. He can't sleep. He's been besieged by God. And we talked about that last week. The army of Israel is besieging Rabbah. But God is doing a spiritual siege of David. He's cutting him off from all the outside resources so that, what's the whole point of a siege? So that he'll surrender. But that's the one thing we don't like to do, isn't it? To say that we're wrong, we're like the fawns in happy days. We can't even get the word. I was ru, 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 ru. We can't get the words to come out of our mouth. So Psalm 32, verse 5, let's read that um, together. Psalm 32 says, uh, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Now that's not so at first. At first he did try to cover the iniquity, and then David says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we've got to ask the question, how do we get from verse 4 to verse 5? What happened? Because verse 4 says, night and day your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then we get to verse 5, and I acknowledge my sin to you. So what happened between those two things? In order to answer that question, we've got to go back to 2 Samuel 12. So let's do that together, get some, some historical background, because what David has to have happen is he has to be convicted of his sin, and conviction of sin very frequently requires some confrontation. And not everybody likes confrontation. Not everybody likes to confront, and even fewer people like to be confronted. So, so the Lord's going to confront David over his, over his sin, but I want you to notice something. If you're in 2 Samuel 11, we, we, we mentioned this briefly last week, but I want to call it to your mind again. 
when you study the scripture, if they're words that appear frequently, you want to kind of pay attention to what those words are. So I want you to see a word that pops up all through 2 Samuel 11. Okay, so, so 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. So do you see that real fast, that verb, S-E-N-T, David sent Joab. Go down to verse number 3. And it says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Okay, go, go, go down to verse 4. So David sent messengers. Go to verse 5, uh, excuse me, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. Verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by Uriah the Hittite. Go to verse 18. I know you picked up on the pattern already. Just hang with me. Verse 18, then Joab, Joab sent and told David. And let's go on to verse number 27. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her. So he's, there's a whole lot of sending going on. There's sending between David and Joab. There's sending between Joab and David. There's, da- there's David sending to Bathsheba. Then Bathsheba sending word. All this sort of. So I want you to look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And we're going to see the verb again. Only this time the subject changes. In other words, the one doing the sendings going to change. So verse 12 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. So God's going to intervene and so say, there's a, there's a whole lot of sending that's going on. Now it's time for me to do a little bit of sending as well. So he sends somebody, and the Bible says, sends Nathan. Now who's Nathan? Nathan's the prophet. Prophets are never popular in their own day. Prophets are only esteemed in the generations after they've come and gone for this reason. Because a prophet exposes sin and calls for repentance. And most people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, their least favorite thing is to hear somebody expose sin and call for repentance. So so Nathan's coming to David. And um, this might be what we call a, um, <laughs> a, a, a counterintelligence mission, so to speak. It's going to be a very subtle attack, but it's an attack that David needs. God's sending Nathan. Now, here's an important point. God's sending Nathan because God loves David. And sometimes the most loving thing someone can do is to warn us of destruction that's to come. If someone stands in the middle of the road and waves, screaming, the bridge is out, the bridge is out, it's because, therefore, you're good. Now, what happens with the prophets most of the time is they're standing in the road saying the bridge is out, and most people speed up and slam right over them and keep going. Now, David's, uh, David's going to have to keep his hypocrisy going, as you'll see. He still thinks nobody knows about all this. They've, they've had Uriah's funeral. David probably went to the funeral and dressed Uriah's casket in honor. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, Nathan did, and said to him, you know, he's going to tell him this story, and let's just, let's just read it together. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat with his, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. And prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's kind of a silly story, isn't it? There's a rich man, there's a poor man. The poor man has one little bitty 
ewe lamb. Rich man's got all this livestock. Traveler comes. The rich man says, yeah, I'm going to feed you, but I'm going to take the poor man's little lamb. And notice David's response to this little story. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, here's the interesting thing about people who are in the season of life trying to cover up sin is that they can be very well attuned and judgmental about the sin in everybody else's life and absolutely, totally, 100% blind to the shortcomings in their own lives. That's why Jesus said, why do you notice the speck that's in your brother eye, brother's eye and not the log that's in your own eye? First, remove the log that's in your eye so that you can see clearly. David's not seeing clearly. And now he's up on his moral high horse and says let me get my hands on that man he deserves to die and he's going to pay restitution and he's going to have to put he's putting forth this righteous indignation before the prophet and here's the next words out of the prophet's mouth nathan said to david you are that man and i don't know how long the statement just hangs in the air and david's trying to look at nathan and he sees the the holiness and the righteousness in nathan's eyes reflecting the holiness and righteousness of God himself. And how long does it go in Nathan's, rather in David's mind? How much does he know? How did he find out? Who told him? What did I leave uncovered? How did he trace, you know, how, how did he pick up the pieces? What was the thread that I left behind that somebody knows all these things that I've covered up? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, this is Nathan speaking to David, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. Now, parenthetically, that statement means that he just, everything that had belonged to Saul and his kingdom had been turned over to David. And gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as, uh, add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And finally, David hears all the things he's been worried about, somebody else finding out. They are very much exposed. So, <laughs> here's, the all, here's the options now for David. Here's, here's the things that he can do. First of all, he can lie and say, no, you're wrong. I didn't do those things. Secondly, he can disagree with God and say they're not sinful things. I can do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. Third, he can repent. And of those three options, only one is going to take you from verse 4 to verse 5. Only one. If David lies, says, I don't do it, night and day your hand was heavy upon me. His, his peace and his joy and his rest for the rest of his days are going to be done. Secondly, he can rebel. And this is what a lot of people do. I mean, who are you, O prophet? Who are you, word of God? Who are you, God himself, to ever say that what I've done is sinful? Now, here's what the Bible says. We're applying all this today. Or to, it's all about David right now, but it's all about us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have an option. 
The one said, no, I, didn't, I haven't ever sinned. And now we've just lied, so we've already sinned. Two, we can say, man, it's not sin. I'll do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. And, and you can think that, but you'll never have joy and you'll never have peace. And you can think that right up to the moment that your little bitty heart, you know, and that's a fragile thing, isn't it? That little bitty heart stops beating and those little bitty lungs stop breathing. And then you'll say, you'll, you'll realize real quick, now it was sin and God is just. Only one way we get from verse 4 to verse 5. And it's verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Oh, if only David would have said that before he sent that word to Joab. If only David would have said that before he went walking on the rooftop. If only David would have said that before he said, No, Joab, this time instead of me leading the battle, even though that's what the king's supposed to do, I'm going to send you. How much tragedy and violence and suffering David and other innocent people would have avoided. So the first thing about coming clean, here's first thing number one, is that God confronts us with our sin. And all through Scripture, this goes different ways. God comes to Cain and said, where's your brother? And Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. What's Cain do? I lie. God says, you busted the septic tank. I don't know what you're talking about. To other people, God comes and confronts, for example, David, and he says, I, I have sinned. So, so the first thing that has to happen is God confronts us with our sin and if we're going to come clean, the second thing that has to happen is we have to offer confession. And I want to tell you, you can't improve upon Psalm 32, verse 5, as far as confession goes. The Bible says, or here, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of, of my sin. So there's three words there. Sin transgression and iniquity. Those are the three Hebrew words that, that uh, refer to our falling short of the glory of God, our sinning. So David says that he acknowledges all of them to, to God. He stops pretending and he, and he admits. Now, what I want us to do is, is to really emphasize the second part of verse 5 and talk about how, how in the world this can happen. The Bible says, and you, David, speaking about God, you forgave, you forgave the iniquity. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, the pattern all through Scripture, let's just go to Genesis 3. I'll show you a few things. We'll do it quick. Go to Genesis 3 with me. We think these books were written so long ago and they don't have a whole lot of bearing on these days, but I want you to see something. Genesis 3, this is the fall. This is when uh, the devil's tempting Eve. He lies to her, beginning verse 4. All these verses are important, but I just want you to see a few things. The serpent said to the woman, you not sure, surely die. You take of the fruit and eat, you're not going to surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So again, the temptation is not eat an apple. The temptation is if you do this, you will be as powerful as God. We've got to know that the temptation is not to have lunch that day with a little apple. The temptation is to throw off God's authority, to throw off his, his supremacy, and that you become like him. Eat the fruit, you'll be like him. You'll be your own God. 
And that is the essence of temptation. Now, I'll see this. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave to, his, to her husband. The eyes were both open. And then go, go to verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves. So real quick, here's a pattern and it's going to carry the rest of, uh, uh, of humanity. She's, she's lied to. She sees something with her eyes. She begins to covet it. She takes it. And then she hides from God. Go with me to, to uh, Judges chapter se- Joshua chapter 7. You heard, what the, heard the account of Eve, right? She saw something, she coveted it, she took it, and then she hid. Joshua 7, not to go into too much of the detail of the background, but they're conquering the promised land. They've just had that great triumph over Jericho, and then they get to this little bitty podunk town, if you will, called AI, and after they've conquered Jericho, they lose at AI, which just means it's sort of like conquering New York City, but then losing Rocky Mount. It doesn't make any sense, but something happened. There's a man, his name's Achan, and he disobeyed God. God had said, when you conquer cities, you don't take the, the, the plunder for yourself, and he did, he did that, and then Joshua confronts him. So again, sin's being confronted, and no, notice what verse 20 says, uh, Joshua seven twenty. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, I coveted them and took them, and they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. So do you see, here's just another, here's just another uh, example. Achan sees something, he covets it, he takes it, and then what's he do? Then he hides it. Now, you want another? Well, that's the one we've been studying, 2 Samuel 11. David saw a woman bathing. He inquired about her. He took her, and then he tried to cover it up. So, so here, here's the pattern. You see something, or you're lied to, first of all. Then you see something. You think that's going to satisfy you, so you take it. And then after you take it, it doesn't pan out the way that you thought it was going to. It doesn't satisfy. That's the lie of sin. Sin makes promises it can't keep. And then you feel like you have to cover it. And that brings us to this point, now that you're covering it up, either you lie about what you did, or you say what you did wasn't sinful, or, or you repent and confess. So, uh, what's required, again, is a confrontation, as Nathan does to David. Let's look at one more passage of Scripture, and that's in John chapter 3. First of all, God brings conviction. And I have to tell you, there is a clear delineation between God's conviction and the devil's condemnation. Now here's here's how awful that liar, the father of lies, is. Is that he leads you into temptation, he lies about about it to you, and then once you fall flat on your face, he throws your face in the mud and kicks you while you're down by weighing you down with with um, guilt in an an ungodly sense. Now, guilt can be helpful if it brings you to repentance, but what the devil does is say, say sin's like a broken arm. God wants to bring conviction, which puts a cast on your arm. The devil just wants to take that broken arm and squeeze. And that's the distinction. The devil's going to bring condemnation. God wants to bring conviction that leads to repentance. Now, 
We get into temptation because we believe lies. And on the other side of temptation, here's two other lies that the devil would have us to believe. But they're a little bit different. One is we don't need to be forgiven. Yeah, that's just not that big a deal. Which is a complete fabrication of the righteousness of God. So one of his lies diminishes God's righteousness and his justice. Secondly, is the lie that we cannot be forgiven. And that diminishes God's grace and his faithfulness. So I want you to hold on to those two thoughts. Lies at the end of temptation, either diminishing God's justice or his faithfulness. Hold on to those two words, okay? Let's, let's repeat them, actually, so I know you're with me. Justice, faithfulness. All right, so, so, so go to John chapter 3, verse, verse 17. In the Old Testament account, God sends Nathan to David. Here, we realize who God sent to us. Look at John 3. While we're here, let's go on and read verse 16, right? This is a great truth of the, of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send, see there's the verb, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come just to say what a bunch of lousy, rotten, no good, sinful scoundrels we are. Now, He did come to say, you are a no good lot of sinful, rebellious, wicked, dead in your trespasses and sins, fallen from sort of the glory of God, people. But I love you, and I have come for you, and if you will repent, we're going to take care of the penalty of your sin. The gospel is not that God just wipes away sin because he's just nice and powerful and decides to do that. The gospel is Jesus Christ came in the flesh to take the penalty of sin on himself in his body. All we like sheep, we have gone astray. But he's laid upon him the iniquity of us us all. So he sent his son. Let's go to one more scripture. Now this is John's gospel. Go to the very back of the New Testament to 1 John. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. Hit reverse. 1 John chapter 1. The verb there used in Hebrew, uh, Psalm 32, 5, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That word literally means lift up. It means to lift up. So, so sin, and because... because we're guilty, it, it leaves a weight on our shoulders. And some of us in the room feel like that. We feel like we're carrying around a thousand pounds everywhere we go. And it's like when we lay down, we lay down with it, and we're trying to toss and turn and get comfortable. And everywhere, your hand is heavy upon me, like David says. Forgave, word forgive means to, literally means to lift up. Now the question is, how can God forgive sin while being both just and faithful. And the Holy Spirit gets a, a hold of John the Apostle one day when he's writing 1 John to very clearly, very succinctly, but very powerfully spell it out for us. And that's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, just real simple. If you're going to go around and lie about it, you're deceiving yourself. Did you know you can lie to yourself and actually believe it? And that's the, by the way, that's what the Bible calls the most dangerous spiritual situation to find yourself in is to lie to yourself and believe your own lies. And that's what he said. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, notice these words, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, here's what we're saying. Jesus died and was crucified for no purpose. He, he, he died for no reason. And he did not die for no reason. He died so that God can forgive us, lift up our sin from us, and be faithful and just while doing it. How is he faithful? Because he gives us grace when we did not deserve it. How is he just? Because Christ did suffer for the sin. In other words, it's not some fuzzy math. It's not an accounting trick. It's not uh, fudging the numbers in the books. Sin requires payment. Jesus, when he was being crucified, what does he say? Paid in full. It is finished. So that, as Paul says in Romans, the one who has faith in Christ is justified. Because you can see the scenario, can't you? When David goes to heaven after what he's done and bumps into Uriah there in glory, it could be awkward, couldn't it? Uriah could say, what's he doing here? But Uriah won't say that, and here's why. One, Uriah is not sinless himself. And two, that sin of David, the adultery with Bathsheba, the lying to everyone around him, and the murder of Uriah, it has been paid for by Christ. And that's why Uriah and David, if they bump into each other, they're probably going to bump into each other on their way to crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because none of us, none of us would be here but the grace of God. For it's by grace you are saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. See, here's the other issue for David, is he can go and try to clean this whole mess up. And that would be about as successful as an eight-year-old boy returning from elementary school and going to that backyard and fixing that mess. But here's what happened. I was at school worried about it the whole day, and I got home, and my dad was there, and he met me at the door. And, and he, uh, I did not know this at the time, but the whole day he called in the uh, septic experts, whoever they are. They dug that thing up and they'd, they'd fixed it. Probably had to put a whole new thing in there. And I didn't know when I came home, he met me at the door and he said, he said, is there anything you haven't told me about yesterday that you'd want to? He was saying, you are the man. He didn't give me a story about a, little boy in a septic tank in some other neighborhood. I mean, he just, you are the man. Now, here, here's, here's what's been going on up to that moment, is I didn't want to be in the same room with him. Not because of anything he'd done, but because of what I'd done. I was nervous around him. I was fearful. I'd, is he going to find out? But he got, gets down on his knee, and he said, I want you to know. Now, I had said, yes, Daddy. I think I busted the septic tank yesterday. Puts hand on my shoulder. I, I know what you did, son. 
And you know, when you're eight years old, you're in that, you're in that um, delicate situation as a boy. You don't like to cry. You, you just, but I can kind of feel it <laughs> starting to well up. And man, when he put his hand on me, that's just it. I just go to bawling. He said, I fixed it. But here's what I'm going to ask you. Yes, sir. Don't do that again. I'll never do it again. Now, this isn't the gospel. The gospel isn't that God forgives us so that we can go on doing that sin over and over and over again. Some people think that. Paul says, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Or, or else we don't really see it for what it is. That's why the, 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 the conviction of sin has to come first. Some people say, yeah, I'm all for Jesus. If, I don't, if he's going to save me from going to hell, well, sure, I'll go with him. But then they go right on in their sin. So they've not really been rescued. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so here, here's that scenario. Yeah, Dad, I'll never do it again. Thanks for forgiving me. And then Dad walked away, and I go outside, get my shovel out, and dig that thing back up and bust it wide open again. That's how some people believe they can live their lives. And that's not so. The forgiveness that we have in God is the chief, the primary preservation from us participating in the sin again, if that makes sense, right? To know that we've been forgiven of it precludes us from continuing to want to participate in it. Now, it doesn't mean we become perfect. It doesn't mean that once we're forgiven and we come to faith in Christ that we don't make mistakes, that we still don't wrestle with lust or our temper. But it does mean that we, I believe, now the Holy Spirit indwells us, it doesn't mean that we, want, we, we do it uh, joyfully or that's what our desire is. Our desire, as Paul said, the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I participate in. So if you've come to Christ, sin is no longer appealing. You see it. Now, here's fallen. See it, covet, take, hide. Here's born again. See it. Oh, God, help me not covet it. And if I take it, I'm not going to hide. I'm going I'm to repent and I'm gonna, going, to, going to uncover. So first of all, real clear, is there's a prophetic word of the Lord saying, the bridge is out, you need to repent. And if you think this whole thing's been covered up, I've seen it. And sometimes we're still in that, man. We, we want to delete the web browse history. We want to delete the credit card bill. We want nobody to find. It's this, hear me, it's found out by the only one who, who, uh, who really matters in this whole sin scenario. God Almighty sees all things. But the good news is he doesn't just see it and says, man, I'm going to destroy you. Here's what he said to David. You shall not die. I put away your sin. Now, where did he put away the sin? And is it still put away? No, he put away for a period of time until Christ was crucified. And man, the wrath that God had for David's sin was poured out on Christ. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the propitiation for sin. It means he's the sin-atoning sacrifice. So one comes conviction, second comes confession. Confession means that you agree with God on his perspective of sin. And we don't start, we stop using euphemisms. We call sin for what it is. We don't, and we don't blame it for somebody else. Notice what David says in Psalm 32. I confessed my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. Confession is not saying, well, yeah, I wouldn't have done it if so-and-so. Remember Adam when he was called? My wife gave it to me. True confession and repentance is, I'm the man. I'm responsible. I'm guilty. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my spouse's fault. It's not my job's fault. It's not my boss's fault. It's not the circumstance's fault. It's, it's my fault. And then third, the good news of the gospel is after conviction and then confession comes forgiveness. <clears throat> the, conviction and convic- and, uh, <laughs> the conviction and confession 
and forgiveness. So that now, we'll close with this, God can say in His Word, there is therefore, this is Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those, now it's specific, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's how it's going to go. If you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you've got to start with the conviction. You've got to allow the prophetic word of God to come and say, the bridge is out, you're, you're headed in the wrong direction, you need to repent. That's why Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew 4.1. He began to preach the kingdom of heaven saying, repent. Repent is on almost every word of the Bible and it's completely devoid in our culture. You're not going to hear about it much out there, but you hear it all the time in here. So first of all, repent. Now, if you're a believer in the Lord, here, the issue now is we've made some mistakes. The devil wants to come along and make the mistakes the defining, the defining event in your life. And some of you are paralyzed. You say, I can't really share the gospel because if I did this. I can't really serve at the church if they ever find out about this. Uh, hey, we've all been found out. Romans 3.23. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. So, so, so don't make the mistake the defining issue, the defining event of your life for a believer in Jesus Christ. There's only one defining event of your life, and here it is. Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb and found the stone was rolled away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, an angel said, Do you not remember what he said? That the Son of Man must be turned over into the hands of sinful men and suffer. Why does he suffer? For the sins that we did. We didn't suffer. He suffered for us. And then on the third day, God so pleased with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that he raises up from the dead. So now God can say, as far as east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Let's stand together. We'll pray together. And we're going to enter into, into a time of uh, going to enter into a time of uh, invitation. An invitation is time for truth. So let me repeat the lies to you, so we can expose the lies and overcome them with the truth of God. First of all, there's a lie that says you don't really have any sin that needs to be forgiven. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Secondly. Some of us feel like we, we cannot be forgiven. Man, if you only knew what I did, uh, <laughs> I think all of us in the room have something like that. Truth of the matter is, he does know what we did. But he wants to know you to know what he did in light of what you did. <laughs> he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, not to come and say, look what you did, but that the world might be saved through him. And that's a big word, might. And that word hangs on. If you're convicted, will you confess and will you repent? Because if you confess, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive, to lift it up, to remove it. But God Almighty cannot forgive and cannot remove if you do not repent and place your faith in Christ because the means of him lifting up has not been applied. That's why it's necessary for you to have faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Almighty God, if there's a believer in the room 
is born again, has trusted Jesus as his or her Savior, but is weighed down by sin, Father, I pray that they'll know the truth of your word, that if we confess you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to lift it up, and once you lift up sin from us, you don't place it back upon us. It's all been placed on the Lord Jesus. As he is crucified on his shoulders, was placed our sin, our transgression, and our iniquity. And then if there's anyone here that that they've never believed in Jesus, they've really never seen him for who he is and what he's done, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you'll use your, the word of God to, 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 so they can see clearly. And would you help them believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the invitation time is open for you to respond in any way that the Holy Spirit would lead you to respond. If you want to come and kneel to the Lord and pray and thank him for the forgiveness that he's given you in Christ, You can come and pray here at the front. I'll stand here at the front. If anybody wants to pray with me or or perhaps in your life you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never said, I believe on him. As a pastor, I'll stand at the front to receive anybody who's... Man, when when the Holy Spirit of God is doing a work in your life, wild horses can't hold you back. So so if God's doing a work, be, be quick to respond. Almighty God, thank you for Jesus. And that like David, we now get to say... You forgave the iniquity of my sin. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Lead us. Amen.